let's see whether Corrine has brought something wild or pleasantly ordinary. Ouch. I somehow feel insulted. Like, is my my wheelhouse pleasantly ordinary? Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Keep It Fictional. I am here with my book friends, Mark, Gabriel, Virginia, and Corrine. It's a full house today. (laughs) My name is Fiona, and we would like to... Uh, acknowledge with gratitude that we are on the unceded traditional territory of the Kwekwetlam First Nation, which lies within the shared territories of Tsleil-Waututh, Keitsi, Musqueam, Kaycat, Squamish, and Stolo Nations. We are very grateful. And of course, every episode, uh, we are uh, coming from those lands. But today is an extremely special day. It is National Indigenous Peoples Day. So each year, since 1996, we celebrate the Indigenous peoples of Turtle Island. This includes the Métis, First Nations, and Inuit. And of course, here on Cuba Fictional, our way of celebrating that is to talk about our fantastic Indigenous reads. And they are plentiful and they are good. For me, it is definitely a favorite topic to read about. Uh, We have so many wonderful Indigenous authors here on Turtle Island. So I cannot wait to hear what everyone has brought us. I'm sure it is going to be quite uh, diverse. There is lots of great stuff out here. So let's hear what Virginia has today. Thank you, Fiona. I have chosen the Bjorken Sagas by the late Harold R. Johnson. Harold R. Johnson is a member of the Montreal Lake Cree Nation, and he died earlier this year. He is both a fiction and a nonfiction writer, and he was also a lawyer and a crown prosecutor. So one of his more notable work is Peace and Good Order, The Case for Indigenous Justice in Canada, which I was hoping to do for this episode, but I didn't get it in time. So I'm still interested in reading sort of his nonfiction work, even though I'm not really a nonfiction writer. But after reading this, definitely interested in seeing what else he has and hearing his point of view from being a a crown prosecutor and what he thinks of the legal system in Canada. Anyway, so the Bjorken Saga is his last published book. And the first draft of the book, he said, was actually a really long poem that he wrote. And his publisher was like, yeah, that's good. Do more of that. And it was in the beginning of the pandemic. So he wrote another two long poems and give it to his publisher. And they're like, well, you know what? We don't really know how to market this. And so his editor suggested to frame this as a secret manuscript story, like a narrator or an author finding like a manuscript and publishing it as a book kind of framework. Not my favorite literary device, but apparently the editors think that that is how they should frame it. Um, he also rewrote his draft, so it's more prose, but with verses integrated within. And so in this book, he drew from both his Cree 
and his Scandinavian roots and sort of combining the two. And so when he was rewriting it, he was thinking about the style of saga in general and also the way his mother used to tell him stories, especially the trickster tales. And so he's sort of combining those two into his uh, writing. And despite the title, the word saga in it, this is actually a very short book. It is about 200 page, <laughs> very quick read. But I would say the subject matter and the writing style is definitely saga worthy. So the idea here is that we have the narrator, possibly the author himself, lives with his wife in a small remote community, and they have taken upon themselves to check in on their neighbor, Joe. Joe has no family and he lives alone. And so they just want to make sure that he's okay. Well, one day when he went over to see Joe, Joe was not up yet, which is unusual because Joe should be drinking his coffee by now in the morning, but he's not up. He is still in bed and he looks really, really sick. So he took him to the hospital and when the doctors look at him, the doctor was like, you know what? There's nothing wrong with Joe. Joe is just old and it's he's fine. Like, you know, there's... That we, there's nothing we can do for him here. So they took him home thinking that they want him to be more comfortable and back in a familiar place. And Joe died shortly after. But he told the narrator that, you know, the gray suitcase that I asked you to keep safe for me while I was in the hospital, it's all yours. Everything in there is yours. And after Joe died, the narrator opened the suitcase and that's where he found, among other things, the manuscript that is written in Swedish. And so when they got translated, that is what we have here, the Bjorken sagas. And of course, part of the book is to find out what is Joe's relationship with the Bjorkens. So there are three sagas in this book about the Bjorkens who live in the Five Valleys. The first saga is told from the point of view of Juha, the storyteller. He was tasked with his two companions to find out what is happening in the outside world because the story trader that usually comes to them once a year and comes to the other valleys once a year has not arrived yet. And they are a little concerned about what's going on. So Yuha went with his companions to the outside world, but then they were kidnapped. In the second saga, Yuha is back in the valley. He's now the winter chief for the year, but there is an invasion going on. So he has to try to figure out with the other valleys how to fan off the invaders. Now, the Bjorkans have certain advantage. They know the land, they have certain abilities, but because Yuha has been to the outside world and has seen what guns can do, and these invaders have lots of guns, so they have to try to figure out how they can defend themselves against these weapons. The third saga is told from the point of view of Lily, a medicine woman that Yuha met in the first saga. And Lily knows that the Bjorkans are in trouble, they'll be invaded, and so she's hoping to get there on time to help. And she has got some special helpers with her. And so the first saga is about sort of that battle that ensues. Now, I'm not giving a lot of details about the story because Hera R. Johnson has crafted a really fantastical story that has lots of interesting elements in here that I think would be more fun if you discover for yourself. However, I will say, and I don't think this is a spoiler because it's on the book jacket, that there are going to be dragons, dragons that have a truce with the Bjorkans for years. They have coexisted, but now the dragons felt that the truce has been broken and they are angry, like really, really angry. There are also Valkyries 
women warriors with wings that can fly horses. And of course, the Bjorkins have special powers, maybe some magic. And then on the other spectrum, um, there might be aliens, maybe spaceships, question mark. Because I was just reading that, I'm like, okay, are we talking about like real aliens? Are we talking about like symbolic aliens? I don't know. You have to find out for yourself. Um, and of course, those are all the elements that drew me to the story in the first place. This is a story that is just begging to be told. It is all about storytelling. It is all about narrative traditions. And the writing style is probably my favorite thing in the book. It is not just lyrical, but it's just the way the prose flows right into the verses and the verse kind of flows right back into the prose. It's so natural. And I also love the really sparse writing that Harold L. Johnson has. And he said that he's not interested in, in paragraphs of descriptions like other saga because readers can take care of that. The focus that he wants to be is the story, the story of a group of people, a story of maybe even bigger than that humankind, not just an individual. And the power of stories, the power of songs is definitely a big theme in the book and the idea that there is this one song that we all sing together and as the characters talk about it it is a universe universe is one verse and how we restore that balance when there's discord in this one song and Johnson also explores the ideas that there are different stories that are being told by men and women and how certain powers that these Bjorkans have, they can only be earned and they will only manifest when you're willing to forget some of those stories. So lots of really interesting elements and give these themes, these things sounds interesting to you. And did I mention there are aliens? Then I hope you will enjoy Harold Al Johnson's The Bjorkan Sagas as much as I do. Thank you so much, Virginia, for bringing that unique title. I absolutely love that you were going to read a nonfiction from a Crown prosecutor, but that he's also written this. <laughs> like, wow, what a guy. <laughs> that is so cool. All right. We are going to move on to Mark. Mark, what are you going to share with us today? Today, I'll be talking about Medicine River by Thomas King. This is actually Thomas King's first novel from way back in, I think it was 1980, late 1980s, early 1990s. It's interesting to get a look back because at that time, King was just a young writer. Not many people knew him, but also the fact that at that time compared to today, the amount of Indigenous writers was much, much, much lower in like the mainstream Canadian and international literature. So it's sort of interesting to look back at how he started out compared to today is one of the top writers in all of Canada. So I was very interested in picking this one up to see how it all began, so to speak. So this story primarily takes place in the late 1980s, was also interspersed with flashbacks of our main character, Will, who is not given a last name, but he looks back to the 1960s and 1970s to his childhood with his family, his mother, his brother, and his absent white father. Scenes are sort of interspersed throughout the chapters, which I'll sort of get into a little bit after, but Will... Is, he's a professional photographer with his own studio. He's got a steady business and good friends. And having lived out east in Toronto, trying to make it big in the big city, he decides to move back to the small town of Medicine River, which is a, a small town in Alberta, not too far outside Edmonton, and is also adjacent to a Blackfoot First Nations reservation. This is the town where he grew up with his family. The story itself begins just several years after he's moved back to Medicine River, and through 
Will's sort of reflections and his trials and tribulations in this city. You sort of get a sense of the culture and the people of this city. I think it's very appropriate that the book is called Medicine River. It's not like someone's name or anything like that, because it's very much about the city itself, the people that inhabit it, the places within it. You really get a sort of cultural feel of what it would be like to live in this place from the way King narrates Will's life. I sort of mentioned this very much about people. So I'll just tell you a little bit about some of Will's friends. And definitely the character looms largest among Will's friends is Harlan Big Bear. And Harlan is like an extremely gregarious, talkative, outgoing kind of person, which is like the exact opposite of Will. Because Will is very much more reserved. He kind of like tries to keep to himself a little bit. He stays home a lot, whereas Harlan's the exact opposite. I like the way that the publisher described Harlan on the back of the book. So I'm just going to read that. It says, Harlan is advising and pestering, annoying and entertaining, gossiping and benevolently interfering in the lives of his friends and neighbors. Because I feel like that really very much describes how Will Will story goes because Harlan is very much a catalyst throughout the novel. It's sort of getting Will into a number of adventures and misadventures. Like, for example, he convinces Will to join the Indigenous basketball team at the Friendship Center where Harlan is the coach. And if you're not familiar with the term of Friendship Center, it's essentially like an urban community center for Indigenous people. It offers spiritual leisure type of activities very much to engage Indigenous people who don't live on reservation. And Will very much starts to get involved at the center through Harlan and through the basketball team. And they even end up going to a a tournament in the United States for Indigenous basketball teams that they even have a shot at winning at. So he sort of gets into these different kinds of things. Whereas on the sort of misadventure side, Harlan, Will, and Harlan's brother, Joe, in an alcohol-filled state, go to a 100-foot-tall bridge at 3 o'clock in the morning and climb up to the top of it. So very much a kind of different set of experiences for Will depending on who he's with at the time. Another important character that I would like to mention is a Louise Heavyman. She's a single mother of a daughter. Um, she's also very close friends with Will. They very much have a kind of close relationship, not quite like a relationship relationship, but they're very, they are intimate with each other. They sort of have like this kind of like, where do we want to go with our relationship kind of uh, thing going on. And Will is even the person who gave her daughter South Wing her name. It was originally as a joke to a nurse at the hospital because they were located in the south wing of the hospital. And as a joke to the white nurse, he said that they're going to name the girl South Wing. And she says like, oh, is that a traditional name? <laughs> so it sort of as like a little joke to wrath the white woman. But then her family ended up really liking the name and they ended up keeping it. So they named her South Wing anyways. In each of these chapters, I sort of mentioned that there's interspersed flashbacks to the 60s and 70s. So for example... These are very much situated within the chapters themselves rather than as separate chapters that are set apart. So, for example, in one chapter, when Harlan convinces Will to buy a canoe at an estate sale, they sort of go out on the river together. They fix it up their canoe and then they go out on the river. And throughout this chapter, they're sort of Will reflecting back on how he went canoeing with his mother and his brother. At the time, they crashed into a rock and thought they were going to drown. So all these little different experiences of theirs. Much the tempo of the story very much sort of feels like kind of naturalistic kind of flow of events like as they happen as you sort of have like these little reminiscences of wills as you start going through these different events so i felt like it was a very natural flowing kind of experience reading the novel and in a way it's almost like reading a series of short stories because the different chapters have these isolated events and the overall narrative arc of the story really is just sort of will thinking about the, the city of Medicine River, the people he knows, the people on the Blackfoot Reservation nearby. So in that sense, it really is about this reflective idea of place and narrative. And I sort of mentioned earlier also that this was at a time when 
indigenous characters were much less common in mainstream literature. So I feel like King was trying to show these different characters in a way that shows the diversity of different people who live on reservation, off reservation within indigenous communities and things like that. So I was very much interested in that aspect of it. And I just want to mention a few more characters that I thought were particularly interesting. There's David Plume, the indigenous activist who went to Wounded Knee in 1973. And if you're not familiar, Wounded Knee was a very large standoff between indigenous Americans, as well as some Canadian indigenous people who went down to America at the time to protest the treatment of indigenous people in the United States to advocate for more rights. And it was very much a turning point in indigenous activism in the United States and North America more broadly. So we get to know David. He's very, very much an active political person, always trying to get Will to become more involved in activism, to join the cause. There's Joyce Bluehorn and her extended family of some odd family members from her parents, grandparents, kids, grandkids, relatives by marriage, and so on, as they commissioned Will to be their family photographer, which Will quickly learns that his little studio in the city is much too small. So they move outside and quickly turns into a kind of reunion barbecue slash initiate Will into the family ceremony <laughs> as he gets to meet every single member of the family. And of course, Harlan's there uh, egging him on the entire way. That's just kind of like the idea of what this story is. It, if you're looking for like an like a grand sort of narrative of like to change or what kind of like epic narrative, you're probably not going to find it here as opposed to in Virginia's story. But in this one, it's very much more character-centered, more down-to-home feeling. And you could also say it's almost like a coming back home narrative to sort of put it that way as well, because you sort of see Will and how he's gone to Toronto, whereas now he's back in Medicine River. So as he's sort of reconnecting with people and the community. So I found that very interesting. And if you think that's interesting too, then I'll think you would want to read Medicine River by Thomas King. Thank you so much, Mark. And as usual, you are speaking my language, character-driven, thoughtful, absolutely. And I really appreciate, yeah, the, the context you provided because it's such a good point of you know, King is such a literary giant now, and we think of him as so successful, but this was a time when, you know, breaking into that was difficult. And I'm so grateful now that there are so many fantastic Indigenous authors that we have access to, and all of those wonderful stories in different genres, these wild genres that Virginia brings, <laughs> and of course, the more traditional ones as well. So thank you. Okay, let's see whether Corrine has brought something wild or pleasantly ordinary. Ouch, I somehow feel insulted. Like, is my, my like, wheelhouse pleasant? That's, that's, that's what I bring to the table, pleasantly ordinary? Well, maybe I did. Maybe I did. Sorry, that was self-referential. I bring the pleasantly ordinary, not you. <laughs> Yeah, well, that didn't, that wasn't what it seemed like at all, Fiona. So let me, I'm just going to need a, 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 like a, a small cup of tea after that. All right. Actually, I went kind of, it, it actually a very pleasant and beautiful book that I really enjoy <laughs> that maybe is a little bit more of a, Mm. Not maybe like the traditional narrative that Mark was talking about, but has more of like a beginning and an end is still character driven, but I think it is more about oh, a larger overview of things. I am actually going to talk about a children's book because I think that for many of us, our first introductions to the depictions of First Nations people in North America is through Little House on the Prairie. 
I think for many of us who might have grown up in a certain time in Canada or the United States is that Little House on the Prairie was formative. In fact, my sister, when I asked her what her favorite book was, she was like, Little House on the Prairie. And I was like, why? She's like, oh, because, because they make things. They like, they like make their own food. They gather their own food and they make their own cups. And I was like, okay, so there's an, an appeal there. And as a child, I, I, I remember reading these and then as an adult, was kind of reintroduced to the topic because I'd completely forgotten about them by Debbie Reese, who runs a very fantastic blog for depictions of First Nations people in children's literature about, you know, the depictions of First Nation people in Little House on the Prairie and Ma's rampant racism. And it is uh, really troubling to kind of look through that again through adult eyes and understand that these stereotypes, that this narrative of the, um, uh, the colonization of the American West and this glorification of pioneer life is, is so, so blatant and is still, for many people, an important part of the children's literature canon. And because, you know, as Mark had referenced for such a long time, um, Indigenous authors were simply just not published and their narratives weren't told, that I think that this particular series is, is incredibly groundbreaking in the way that it is retelling that time period, that period in uh, North American history through the eyes of Indigenous children and retelling and reshaping that narrative to be more truthful to the lived experiences of those people. And, you know, this, this might be a children's book, but I think it is written by one of the greatest living authors, who is Louise Erdrich, which is a name that I have never said out loud, but I have read many times, so I apologize if I'm saying that incorrectly. Louise Erdrich, who is primarily writes amazing books for for adults that has written this wonderful five book for now five book series called the Birchback House series which kind of chronicles the life of a young Ojibwe girl and and her growing up in kind of the period of the 1840s it starts with the first book which is called the Birchback House and it is about a young girl called Amakaius who is also called Little Frog because uh, her first step was a little hop, which I just love. And at this point, she is seven years old, but she is also the sole survivor of a smallpox epidemic on Spirit Island. And so most of her, her family has, has passed away and she has kind of lived through this traumatic event. And in fact, Louise Erdrich uh, went back and talked to the elders and went through a lot of research to pull out this, this true story of what had happened on Spirit Island, which um, is kind of Lake Superior's Madeline Island, um, but is called by the people there, the Island of the Golden-Breasted Woodpecker. And so this young girl is the sole survivor and she is rescued by another very brave Ojibwe woman who kind of takes her from the island and adopts her into the family. And the first story kind of chronicles an entire season of the family together. So it kind of goes through the, the daily life. So if you're my sister and you love the details of how, how people live, um, it has all of that. It has truly some of the most realistic depictions of sibling interactions that I've ever read in a book. 
having three siblings of my own, it rang very true. It talks about her pet crow and edge. It talks about them kind of moving from place to place, her growing up and, and her coming to terms with her own trauma, which is then revisited when smallpox comes to that family as well. It is a, a beautiful series. It is in some places a difficult series because of the reality of the of the situation. And I think Erdrich handles it wonderfully for children in being very true and honest about the reality of what happened, but kind of te- telling it in a way that's really, really suitable and appropriate for young children. And the entire series kind of chronicles her as a young girl, tells about the stories of some of her siblings, and then when she is older and married and has children. So if you if you are looking for a beautiful historical fiction for young children, or honestly for adults, I really enjoy a historical fiction for kids, and you are kind of wanting to give your brain that that balance to kind of fight against that er narrative of pioneer life or of the American West. This is a a wonderful, good for your soul book um, with some fantastic writing it for children. I'm by Louise Erdrich, who is a member of the Turtle Mountain Band of Ojibwa. And it has wonderful, like beautiful light pencil drawings in it that I I just love that are scattered throughout. So I would heartily recommend uh, picking this one up or gifting the set to a kid in your life. Thank you so much, Corrine. Yes, it is a wonderful series. I'm so glad that you brought it today. Because as you say, say, I remember my first interaction with uh, Indigenous characters in children's literature was The Indian in the Cupboard. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this is just such a, such a great series. And I want to see it on every book list, on every shelf to replace those titles. <laughs> Thank you. So <clears throat> before we uh, move on to Gabriel and my we are going to have a little question period uh, and hopefully this shouldn't be too existential it'll be fun <laughs> I promise um, so National Indigenous Peoples Day falls on the summer solstice June 21st because many Indigenous people celebrate their culture uh, at that time around the solstice so that was ultimately what was chosen in 1996 and it means more light, less rain, usually, hopefully. So I am definitely looking forward to the summer. And what I would like to know from my book friends today is, what is your favorite summer activity? I am, why I'm glad you asked. So I love in the summer to marathon, you know, not running. No, not the sweaty kind of marathon. I once watched all 10 seasons of Stargate SG-1, I think over the course of June, and each episode is an hour, and each season is 22 episodes. I don't know if I slept. High school is a different time. It's just time works differently when you're in high school. And then I moved on to Atlantis. But I like to marathon in the summer, and I don't know if I've watched TV since last summer. So there's things for me to catch up on. And that's what I'm looking forward to. That's amazing. (laughs) A very unique answer. Or perhaps not. (laughs) Let's see what our other book friends say. Yeah, I'd have to say that I remember when I was in high school, I used to watch like Akira Kurosawa movies at 1 a.m. on Turner Classic Movies all summer long as my way of finishing out the summer. 
But for my answer, I'd have to say going to the beach because living in Vancouver, much of the year, unfortunately, going to the beach isn't the best of options. So I have to take advantage of those summer months the best I can. Otherwise, I'm going to sorely miss getting out in the sun and hopefully not burning up too much. But it's really the only time I have the opportunity. So that's probably my favorite thing to do in the summer. Well, I'm going to go represent the rain people. Sadie, this is for you and me. We love the rain, as you all know. So my favorite activity in the summer is how am I going to hide from the sun? Which corner in my house has the least sunlight is what I'm going to do. So there you go. I'll, I'll talk as the anti-mark. I hate the beach. I hate it so much. It's the worst place in the world. All the sand, so much sand, it gets everywhere. Yeah, just before I start, like a little plug for the uh, celebrations that are happening in Port Moody on National Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, At the library, we're going to have a storyteller. There is going to be T and Bannock over at Momsen Creek Hatchery. There's a lot, I know, I know, Fiona, there's a lot of really fantastic events happening to celebrate locally. So make sure to check those out. I think they are probably, if you go onto our calendar, under the uh, Kang Jade uh, speech, there is, I believe, a link to all of the other fantastic things that are happening in Port Moody. So definitely, definitely get out there, check out the local things that are happening um, to celebrate this fantastic day. And the question was, my favorite thing to do in the summer is probably actually, maybe I am pleasantly ordinary. I like going for picnics with my friends. I like to go out into a park and just kind of like enjoy a nice meal on a picnic blanket something nice about it because yeah I as you can tell from this pallor I'm also not a sun person um but I will go outside for a picnic so wholesome Kareen oh my gosh <laughs> okay uh I can I'll be that person I'll want you to be that person since Mark at the beach I love to go camping but I only go once a summer and I gotta go where there's a toilet and a shower so I'm definitely a car camper I'm not like I'm not hoofing it into the woods but just that opportunity to have like one one fire controlled (laughs) in a fire pit (laughs) over the summer uh is is what I love to do (laughs) thank you and of course oh my gosh I forgot and of course summer reading club you know is definitely a highlight of the summer but I think, you know, the great thing is uh, books, they go to the beach, they go on a picnic. You definitely read them in the shady corner of your home. They're great for camping. Uh, maybe a little palate cleanser, Gabriel. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Speaking of books, as we do, Gabriel, did you ring today? All right. Well, not to... Uh accidentally get in on the same <laughs> on the same place as Mark, but I brought another Thomas King. So I chose a graphic novel today, uh, and it's one that I had caught my eye from the first time I saw it in the library, and it is called Borders. So Borders features a short story by Thomas King with illustrations by Natasha Donovan. It's a story of a family from the Nitsit Dabi peoples, also known as the Blackfoot Confederacy. And the Nitsit Dabi are comprised of four different groups that currently reside in Treaty 7 territory in southern Alberta, as well as northern Manitoba. The Nitsit Dabi were nomadic peoples, moved across their traditional territory in accordance with bison migration, as well as some other factors. Given the historical practice of overhunting bison and also splitting this territory in half with a land border between the U.S. and Canada, modern Nisitabi people 
face sort of unique challenges to embracing their culture. And I think that's important to know before you really get into the book, because it is very much based on a history and based on sort of the context that these people live in. As I mentioned, the graphic novel is actually adapted from a short story that Thomas King wrote, which has been passed around high school classrooms, has challenged the beliefs of many who've come across it. He is a novelist from mixed Greek and Cherokee ancestry, who is known for writing a few notable books, as well as some radio plays and television shows. So in 1993, he published Greengrass, Running Water. 2012, he wrote The Inconvenient Indian, a curious account of Native people in North America, which also won the RBC Taylor Prize. The written parts of this book, the part that Thomas King contributed, are very simple, but they are still incredibly lovely. And they are very, even though they're short, they're so poignant. They really get to kind of the heart of the matter without it being particularly flowery, which is something that I think I appreciated, especially because the narrator in the book is also quite young. The narrator is sort of telling the story in the past tense for some of it when he was even younger, but he's still barely a teenager. And so there is sort of an element of kind of simplicity and truth where you can tell that you as an adult might have a little bit more context for what's going on than he does. But it's not that he's like not in the know. It's just one of those things where you know that this might hurt later, I think, in some ways. And so it's a very unexpectedly emotional book in some ways and well maybe not unexpectedly emotional but it's definitely an emotional book and it's a complex one but it also it's so simple that it's almost startling to have those two I think exist in the same in the same piece so adding to this story is the amazing art from Natasha Donovan Donovan is a Métis artist uh, who has worked on sort of like a number of comics and children's books, including The Sockeye Mother in 2017, which is part of a series, and also Surviving the City in 2018, which is in part about murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. And so they're both quite, they're both quite notable creators and also quite talented. It It's gorgeous artwork, incredibly bold colors. Again, the simplicity it almost takes you by surprise because of how how well it all works together so as you can already tell i'm gassing this up because it's a 10 out of 10 for me i love this book i thought it was great the family in borders has three prominent members so we have the son who's our narrator we have the mother who i almost kind of saw as the main character of the book because a lot of the action sort of focuses on her. And we have Letitia, who's the daughter. Letitia has moved from their reserve on the Canadian side of the line to Salt Lake City, Utah, on the other side. It was a decision that wasn't supported by her mother, but it was something that Letitia was de- determined to do. There's sort of a low tension here between these two women, but there is still such love that radiates from their relationship. It's not the sort of thing that was going to break them, even if it was going to cause maybe some some friction, which is something that is is quite beautiful to see. I always I always love a, a positive parental and child relationship in a book. And so it was nice to see that. Uh, they drive Letitia to the border near Coots, Alberta. And the mother has a moment where she kind of brushes her daughter's hair out of her eyes. And just that small act of care was enough for me to know that she kind of really sees her and will support her. And 
fortunately, Letitia thrives over the border. Uh, she sends the mountains of postcards, urging them to come visit. So one day, they do. The mother and son, they pack a lunch. They bundle into their car to visit their daughter and sister. But when they reach the border, they run into problems. When asked their nationality or citizenship, the mother responds, Blackfoot, not Canadian or American. One after another, the border guards ask her, and she always tells them the same thing. There's quite a few attempts at bargaining with her or trying to coax her into giving a different answer, but she stands firm. And that was one of those moments, actually, that I was looking at it going, this is sort of, it. it's so, it doesn't seem as much of a threat, I think, to the young narrator as it does to me reading it how tense you are in in these moments how how well the tension is built up despite the fact that it seems to be a very pleasant exchange but it's this sort of strange needling that's happening eventually she's let through the canadian side of the border only to be denied entry on the american side when they turn around to try to get back into canada they aren't let through either so this no man's stretch of land and is comprised basically of the duty-free shop and some road. And it's a rather, I think, it's a rather poignant metaphor for the reality of like the artificial borders and lines that trap many Indigenous groups. The mother is incredibly proud of her heritage, as she should be, and refuses to use the colonial labels that someone else has decided for her. So she and her son have uh, some beautiful moments where they're sort of stargazing and storytelling while they're trapped in this very real liminal space. And eventually... The Americans cave under media pressure that comes in, and they are able to go to Salt Lake City. Hopefully that didn't spoil too much for anybody. I think it's definitely one that I think reading it is more the experience because it is such a short story in its original context. It's more about looking at the way they, they put it together and thinking about things as you're going through it. The, the illustrations really are, are gorgeous. And so Borders quite beautifully peels back the way that colonialism has sort of rewritten and tried to bury the real history of the people it's betrayed, the arbitrary border between Canada and the states. And it shows these believable and grounded implications for how these ideas continue to very con concretely like affect Indigenous peoples. And they aren't just sort of something broad, I'd say, out, and out there, especially because Indigenous sovereignty is something that's still being debated quite heavily across the continent, and it's different in every province. I believe the story was actually written in the 90s as well, but the book is, is fairly recent. And so it's sort of interesting to see how little things have changed and how much they have and, and kind of the ways that the two creators were able to work with each other to bring this to life. So like I said, pretty much a 10 out of 10 for this one. I absolutely loved it. Simple on the surface, but so important once you're thinking critically. No video games for me, although there are some great Indigenous video games out there, but completely different type of media. Go watch Blood Quantum. So good. <laughs> Directed by Jeff Barnaby, filmed in Quebec. The dead are coming back to life outside of an isolated Mi'kmaq reserve of Red Crow, except for its Indigenous inhabitants who are strangely immune to the zombie plague. It is full of tropes. Some of them are new. Some of them are things that want to be made into tropes. So much fun. So that one is a very different approach to sort of disentangling the ways that colonialism still plays a very prevalent role. That one has a lot more blood. It's got a lot more fun stuff. This one, a little more introspective. 
So it's kind of like a choose your own adventure. We can tackle blood quantum or we can tackle identity and sovereignty. It's up to you. Thank you so much, Gabriel. I'm, I'm very happy with the diversity of what we've chosen today, especially in like form. So thanks for mentioning the movie as well. I don't do horror, but I sat through it because I thought it was an important and amazing film. Terrifying. But I also thank you for um, shining a spotlight on comics because there are some amazing Indigenous comics out there. David Alexander Robertson, who writes in all sorts of forms, usually works with a white settler, Scott Henderson, and they have just so many amazing graphic novels that are very educational, (laughs) but also very, very exciting and interesting. So thank you for bringing attention to the comics. Okay, finally, I have chosen a YA, so we really are like covering our ground today. This is not a A typical Fiona book. It's actually a fantasy set in the real world, um, which for me is kind of like usually a a no-go, but it was so unique um, that even having a lot of the tropes that kind of like don't do it for me, I really enjoyed this and felt it was like a worthwhile read for me. Obviously, for some people, that's their go-to. And and then I, I heartily recommend this to them. This is Alatsue by Darcy Little Badger. And Little Badger, as well as the protagonist, is uh, Lipan uh, Apache. And this book follows Ellie, or Alatsue. Ellie is a young woman, and she has the power to resurrect ghosts. So it's entirely taboo to do that to humans. Uh, so all of the ghosts that she brings back are animals. Her best friend is a ghost dog named Kirby, who was previously a living dog, her living dog. Uh, and when Kirby passed on, uh, she brought him back as a ghost. And there's a lot of fun playfulness there in looking at how you would interact with a ghost dog. And Ellie has learned these skills. So part of what I found interesting about the the magic system is that a lot of it is actually considered knowledge. So it's not an inherent ability. It's not passed through blood. It's something that's passed through ancestral knowledge. Now, in this alternative earth, there are also other ancestral magics. For instance, her best friend Jay is a descendant of Oberon uh, and of the fairy folk. So the way they explored that was actually really interesting. There's also vampires. Again, that's usually like a big no for me, but it was like this really like, you know, I'm not just going to take for granted all of the tropes that we have about vampires. Uh, I'm going to think how it would coexist with Apache folklore. So that was really cool and unique. The story follows Ellie as she investigates the murder of a cousin, an older cousin who has died in a car wreck. And it looks to be just that, a car wreck, until she is visited by her cousin's ghost. Now, because she can't bring back his ghost permanently, because human ghosts are angry, vengeful spirits, she has to discover what has happened to her cousin on her own. I think Gabriel was mentioning in their book that there was a really positive parent-child relationship. Uh, And that was something I really loved about this book is that she's not like, I'm going to do this secretly and like get into all this trouble. She totally brings her family into it, which is something like in like a mystery with like a teen or a kid that I always really appreciate because then you're not like worrying about them all the time. (laughs) I'm such an old person. Oh my gosh. But 
Yeah, I really, I love that. And it made, it made a lot to it. It made Ellie feel like a really strong, in, like independent character. Uh, she felt responsible. That just gave me like a little sense of peace. So the the book is part mystery. And I would say that the, the mystery itself is extremely satisfying in a supernatural sense. So it's not like a breadcrumb trail, but it's like a cool... Oh, I don't want to spoil anything, so I won't say anything. But it's a it's a cool supernatural outcome, which I really enjoyed. It has all of these great scenes. Like Ellie brings back a trilobite, uh, which is a really cool because you know when you think of animal ghosts, you don't often think of fossils. And she also talks a lot about her sixth great grandmother who she is named after, and they just call her sixth grade. Uh, and she also had this knowledge that Ellie had. And so she kind of is what Ellie's always trying to live up to. And uh, sixth grade has this woolly mammoth pet. So that was really cool. And and they kind of like ride around on this woolly mammoth ghost. <laughs> Very unique. I, yeah, I don't want to like talk too much about the mystery because I don't want to spoil it. But if you like unique magic systems and unique supernatural beings, this is definitely a book to pick up. I also really appreciated that it wasn't just doing that. It wasn't just like, hey, what if monsters were real? It was like, let's look at folklore and through a, a decolonizing lens. So let's look at how these systems exist, could exist together in very much, you know, in the real world and then bringing in this magical element of it. So I really felt like it was still quite, quite a like perceptive book. And overall, just like kind of a, a fun adventure. There's like a little bit of um, a road trip, but then they also like travel through magical fairy rings. So, you know, not your typical road trip and there was some very there was a very sinister kind of middle american small town uh that they have to go to to do their investigating in and i love that kind of setting so this is alatsue by darcy little badger she is an up-and-coming lipan apache voice and she has written some other books that i'm very excited to dig into because she has an amazing imagination and is not afraid to kind of break down barriers highly recommend this ya book and again, I'm just really excited um, that we were able to talk about children's book that was a historical fiction, contemporary YA with magic in it, you know, a fantastic contemporary story about city life and life on the reserve, a comic book, and then I never know how to describe Virginia's books. <laughs> A poetry saga in three stories encapsulated in one and with aliens, of course. Yeah, we really touched on a lot and, you know, and we haven't even um, really gone to the tip of the iceberg. So thank you so much for uh, joining us today as we celebrate a National Indigenous Peoples Day. And of course, we hope that you read Indigenous all year long because there is so much out there to explore. Thank you so much. Have a great summer, and we will see you next time on Keep It Fictional. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional.